Yeah, I think you have to consent. Look at that, Zoom asking for consent. Oh, I see. Oh yeah, it goes continue or leave meeting. <laughs> yeah, so it's like a little coerced consent, but you know, it's like these Would you like to keep talking or would you like to eat? For, for serious is what I was about to say. Um, I'm gonna- <laughs> For realsies. For realsies. Okie dokie, artichokey. Hello, <laughs> welcome to the podcast. <laughs> Today we have a special, special guest. Uh, she is one of my best friends, one of my favorite people to talk about big life shit with. And when I thought about having a guest on the podcast, Mercedes was the one that came up first. So um, today, joining us from Seoul, South Korea, uh, which is so freaking cool that we can record this, um, is Mercedes. Are you cool with your last name? You just want first name. <laughs> Sorry, I didn't ask you that before we started. <laughs> uh, you can you can use my last name. That's fine. Okay, cool. Mercedes Kella. <laughs> uh, Kella. Yes. So you can take the floor and introduce yourself. Hi, I'm Mercedes. I'm. I was about to say Nancy's friend, but it's just like. <laughs> Oh, I feel like that's a dumb thing to say. Um, what's an inter more interesting thing to say? Um, I'm currently living in South Korea. I'm teaching English like many other uh, expats living over here. I've been over here for just, I guess, almost a year and a half now. Almost a year and a half. I was going to say just over a year, but it's longer than that. Um, and more pertinent to this conversation, I am demisexual panromantic. Heck yeah. That will probably come up as we talk. Yes. Yeah, I just realized I didn't introduce the topic at all. Um, I usually I usually title the podcast The One Where and then Whatever Happens in It because yeah, I yeah. don't remember shit. Um, but yes, thank you for bringing that up. Um, and uh, do you want to also state your preferred pronouns? Uh, just for the record. <laughs> she, her. She, her. Okay, coolio. Um, all right, so for this episode, thank you for introducing yourself, sorry. <laughs> There's like this battle in my brain of like, you need to be formal. This is a podcast episode and also like, this is a conversation with your friend. What the fuck is formal? Um, I, I feel like, to be honest, like when I listen to podcasts of people and they're, they have a friend, they have like a guest on, but that guest is also a close friend or family member of theirs. I think the like more relaxed tone is, is oftentimes fun. Like I like that. It'll also probably feel really weird if we're trying to be too like, <laughs> like we don't know each other. Yeah. This isn't a school project. <laughs> Um, okay, so the reason that I wanted to do this episode, and I'm glad that our schedules aligned because time zones and adult life, <laughs> sometimes there's one or both of us disappearing for several weeks or months at a time and then being like, hi, I'm alive, sorry, I'll get to your messages soon. Um, so the reason this was coming up was because over the last couple months, Mercedes and I have been talking about um, relationship dynamics, societal pressures, um, personal identities as well as uh, sexual orientation and sexual identities within um, our own self-discoveries. 
And we've been basically sending each other voice essays. Um, neither of us are really able to send like a quick two minute thing. It's like, oh wait, but all of these other things connect and there's so much context that I have to give you in this conversation. Uh, so it ends up being like 40 minutes of voice notes back and forth and I absolutely love it. Um, so I think the biggest thing that's been coming up is finding fulfillment outside of romantic relationships and feeling like we've been lied to, which was something that you said that like blew my mind. I had to sit with that for a while because I have spent most of my life, um, actually I'd say all of my life, like I have a memory when I was like four being like, I'm gonna marry Bill Nye the science guy, which yeah, <laughs> my <laughs> old man was not a parent as a child. Um, <laughs> daddy issues um, if that wasn't apparent then it, it, it is now <laughs> sorry I'll try not to say funny things when I see you drinking um <laughs> no it's good it's good I didn't choke we're fine <laughs> um yeah I have spent most of my life chasing this like idealistic fantasy land romance with somebody else that um it honestly took away from my enjoyment and fulfillment in life uh, and my ability to be friends with people specifically with men um and when you had said that it kind of felt like society had lied to us about um what fulfillment actually was and where it came from it was so impactful for me um so yeah what what were your thoughts on that what what brought you to that realization in the overall sense I think it's been a long time coming in that like the general idea of like what a successful life looks like not fully just the romantic part of it but just the overall idea of like and that's something that I think a lot of people have challenged that like the you grow up you get married you get a job you get a little house and have some kids and I think a lot of people in our generation are like no you know a lot of people are like that's not going to work or even if they want to do think things like that like there's parts of that that I do want to do uh but that they're just like it's not as feasible as it as it was for our parents' generation, for our grandparents' generation, um, and that kind of thing. But and I think that like it's been part part in like a longer sense in the last like couple of years. I've talked to different adults and I've seen different adults, people who are like in their fifties, in their sixties or seventies, um, and some of them whom have spent their whole life working toward a, an idea of a successful life that isn't theirs that was either given to them kind of by society a lot of the times but like emboldened by their parents that their parents had a sort of specific set of expectations for them and even in some cases where their parents have long since passed away they're still like they've so ingrained that that's the idea of success that they didn't realize that it's not their own and they are miserable and it's awful. They, they have sources of joy in their life. Like they're not like, it's not like everything is terrible, but it's really sad to see someone in from like in their 60s, 70s or like whatever, looking back and saying, yeah, I'm really unfulfilled with this massive part of my life. Um, and that was kind of the first part of eye-opening in the last like couple of years that I'm like, I need to define my own idea of success. 
And I'm really lucky that my parents are the kind of people that um, understand you can't push someone into something, partly because they had dealt with that in their youths and they didn't want to, they knew that if they pushed us towards something we didn't want to do, it wasn't going to turn out well. We weren't going to magically just like be happy with it. We were going to probably struggle and not be, not be super happy. So they wanted us to be realistic in our goals but also uh, pick something that we actually wanted to do and would enjoy ourselves. Um, And so long as that was what we were working towards, they didn't mind so much whatever it happened to be. Um, And then in the last, like, I think I started like re-questioning my sexuality or at least questioning this portion of my sexuality last summer uh, or toward the end of last summer. And I started like thinking I'm probably demi for a a couple of months before talking to some of my friends about it. And then like coming out online, even though I told you I I hate hate, like coming out again. Um, I'm just like, you have to figure it out on your own at this point. I'm not gonna tell you. Um, Or I'm gonna slip it into conversation really casual and like keep going as if you just already know it. Um, and in more recent, especially because I've been, because when I get, when I get into something or when I find anything about myself, I very much like dive into it. Um, and so one of the things I started doing was listening to a podcast called Sounds Fake But Okay. Mm-hmm. And they, I eventually joined the discord. So I've po- both been like seeing discussions and taking part in discussions there and just listening to the episodes and, more and more seeing like these ideas of just how much like let like our idea of uh, a romantic relationship has been kind of put on a pedestal and it's not something that I didn't totally know like I think for a long time I've known that like we overvalue romance in uh, like in like terms of like and like in regards to like friendships and other relationships, we have like this, this pedestal for romance, which like to some extent, it makes sense that you're gonna, if that's your life partner, sure, you're gonna put more effort, like you're gonna care more about that. They're gonna be a bigger part of your decisions than like your other friends, you know, your other friends could move somewhere else or you could move and you're not gonna ask ask your friends like, can I move to this city? But you are gonna talk to your life partner about that because that's something that's going to directly affect them if you're like living together, um, if you're planning big parts of your life together. Uh, But another thing I think has also been like seeing people talk about QPRs and getting a better understanding of like what that is and that kind of fulfillment that you can get outside of a romantic relationship and realizing that the things that I want to do are not like they don't fall on me having to have a romantic relationship for me to live the other parts of my life fully I don't have to like wait on this step to happen to kind of keep going forward with my life I can do what I want some things like becoming a parent will be more difficult if I don't have um other people to do that with but that doesn't necessarily have to look like a nuclear nuclear family um it can go in different directions and I think like a lot of sort of realizing that has just been like it feels like a big lie 
that it's like you have to, that the fulfillment you're going to get has to come from your partner and that you have to put that on them, which I think Nick, just thinking about that now as well, like that's also kind of a lot to ask of someone like, yeah, if you, it's good to like be each other's supports and stuff, but I feel like it is a lot to ask that that relationship be so much more fulfilling than the other ones in your, in your life. Um, and it can be really easy to pull away from friendships, um, and to put all of your energy into, into that relationship, which is also, I think, why it can be so devastating when they, when they fall apart, not just because you're like losing someone you're very close to, but because you're building something up around a person and building a lot of expectation on something that maybe you're doing so too soon, or maybe it like that relationship doesn't have the strength to hold the weight of that expectation. For sure that it it creates this unnecessary pressure, right? And then that, when the external reality falls away, right? If, if things do end, you're mourning the loss of that relationship, but you're also then mourning the idealized version that you had created in your mind of what that relationship stood for in your life, what pillar of support that was for you, regardless of whether that was the external reality or not. Um, going back to something you'd said at the beginning, there were so many fucking awesome things. And this is why I love talking to you. <laughs> as you're talking I'm like bing 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 like so many ideas um the first one was coming to like the external identity rooted in a physical representation of success right and how a lot of parents family members and community members root their identity in your ability to succeed in a traditional way and if you don't then they have somehow failed as a parent or a guide or as a community member, whatever the dynamic is within your upbringing that your lack, I say this with air quotes, (laughs) your perceived lack Mm -hmm. of success is somehow their fault, right? And it's like a personal knock on them. Um, So again, Mm -hmm. it's in that pressure of not wanting to disappoint people, but also not feeling fulfilled by that traditional expectation that's coming forward. And then coming into the influence of social media. Oh my God, I love that we have social media. Sometimes it can be toxic, (laughs) but Mm -hmm. I really think that it's created a dialogue between communities that were otherwise divided and separated, that they didn't have a clear method of communication to see that there are people living outside of traditional norms and that nuclear family dynamic that you spoke of that are extremely fulfilled, right? And I think it was a couple weeks ago, or maybe it was last week, time is weird, I don't remember, but (laughs) I had messaged you um, saying that I realized the greatest love story of my life was actually between me and one of my other best friends, that I realized she had been there for every big life thing and we had grown so much together that I was like, whatever romantic relationship comes into my life, whatever, whenever and whatever the universe decides to drop on me, Mm -hmm. it's going to mirror this because this is a healthy relationship where we can talk to each other. There's space for both of us to grieve if we need to grieve or celebrate when we succeed and go through just the mess of being human and how 
it, I like to call them tower moments of like things crumbling down, but also being rebuilt in the same time, because although it was devastating in a way for me to let go of that idealized romance, and as you said, that pressure on your romantic partner to be the main support for everything. When I let go of that, I was like, oh my God, this is actually great though, because you get to practice, right? Like you get to have that relationship with multiple people and you don't have to put strain on one particular relationship in your life when you can get that support. And um, I wanna say like encouragement, but not necessarily in like the hoorah encouragement. Sometimes it's the tough discussions that you need to have with people to be encouraged. <laughs> um, which I feel like comes <laughs> comes a lot easier from friends than it does family. Um, but yeah, that overvaluing of romance really, it sets people up to be miserable, as you said, and, and to fail in, or feel like they're failing at, at life, right? Because suddenly if that romantic relationship doesn't pan out the way that you thought it would, then, you know, you're not, it, it's like part of your life is falling apart that you've, you've put so many, so much energy into, um, and coming back to social media very briefly, it's it's been incredible as like an educational tool, seeing other people learning how to identify within their sexuality, to identify within their personal identity <laughs> um, and have that be welcomed. Like I've been exploring with pronouns. I recently added they to my pronouns. Um, so it's she, her, they, I use them interchangeably. Um, there's no like preference for either one, but having that addition felt like I was honoring my internal world as well as my external presentation of who I am as a person. And it felt so silly at first. I was like, well, this is stupid. Like I'm female presenting. I'm mostly female identifying. Like what, what does it matter? But then that day that you texted me, it was like, oh, hey, I noticed that you added that in your bio. Like, how do you want me to use it? I felt so validated. I was like, oh my God, like I didn't even notice that this was bothering me until somebody asked me about it. And now I'm like, whoa, this is like such a freeing thing to explore that and to finally have a term to describe how I feel personally. And then also discovering that I'm also demisexual and that there is nothing wrong with me with not wanting to be part of hookup culture or anything like that, that that's just who I am. And I don't think I would have come to that realization had it not been for the platforms on social media that I had interacted with. I, I ended up on um, the healthy LGBTQ plus side on TikTok and seeing people living their lives and like opening that discussion has given me my own confidence to be able to tell my friends like, oh, hey, this is actually, this is actually how I identify and this is important to me. Um, so yeah, I think there was a lot of uh, super interesting uh, points that you made there. And just before we continue, can you clarify what QPRs are? I don't think I've heard that term before. A QPR is a queer platonic relationship, okay. or you'll have queer platonic partnership. So I think the first time I heard about it, like some, it's, it's easy to misunderstand because it, to some people, they're kind of like, oh, it just sounds like friends. But a lot of what it is, is it's kind of like entering into the types of commitments that you might with a serious romantic relationship, 
but you're not looking for that romantic part of it. So this might be someone that you're like a QPR can be a more like casual thing, just like it can be when you're early in the dating sphere. Um, but it also can be a longer term um, commitment to someone. It might be something where like, and I've seen it come up a lot for people talking within the um, within the ASPEC community, is you do have some people who are um, arrow and or ace, and they personally don't want to pursue a romantic relationship at all. But a lot of people still want a companionship and a partnership in life or a group of partners, whatever it happens to be. But there's a lot of people who still want, you know, that that support and that comfort of kind of a primary person that they can turn to. And, you know, you work on still having your network, but it's good to have that person that you can kind of plan things around. Uh, because I think it can, like, if you, if you go through life, like, without some sense of close companionship, it can be lonely. Um, and so the idea of it a lot of the time is a, for a lot of people is a non-romantic, um, oftentimes serious partnership for some people that will last like the rest of their lives that is akin to a marriage, uh, but it is not romantic, it's platonic, but it comes with similar things like living together, like moving around together, making big life decisions together, um, sharing finances, um, make it like all of those sorts of things that you would that you would consider like a part of a marriage can be a part of a of a long term serious QPR. Right. So having like the structural foundation of a marriage without the romantic um, mm -hmm. interaction and uh, I want to say attachment in a way. Yeah, yeah. Okay, cool. That's, that reminds me of what we were talking about um, in terms of like co-parenting with mm. um, friends or people who have similar parenting values, especially as you said, like being a single parent would be a lot more difficult, but having a romantic partnership or having children is not dependent on having a romantic partnership. There are many ways that you can go about having children, um, whether through adoption, um, I was about to say like scientific assistance, which is such a weird way to say like. <laughs> that is a, that's a weird term for IVF, but I kind of like it better. Right? Yeah, I was like. Scientific I, assistance. Scientific assistance, yeah. You grow yourself a baby. Um, mm -hmm. I mean, you'd be growing a baby either way, but <laughs> there are so many different ways to meet that fulfillment. And mm -hmm. um, it's just, like, it can be lonely if you don't want that romantic uh, relationship or that romantic dynamic in your life or it just hasn't happened for you it, it isn't part of where you're going in life it's it doesn't mean that you don't still deserve companionship that you don't still deserve care and compassion from somebody else especially in a, a long-term capacity um, and I really love that idea of like friends being friends five ever, like <laughs> mm -hmm. that you can do the big life stuff with, with friends. It doesn't, mm -hmm. it doesn't have to be with a romantic partner all the time. Mm -hmm. And I think that also comes back to uh, what you said about like not, not letting go of friendships when you are in a romantic relationship, right? Like as much yes. as it's, important to foster that sense of companionship and connection with your partner 
you still need to foster that with your friends and your other support group members. Um, mm -hmm. Because again, that's, it's not dependent on that one person. That's such a huge expectation. And I want to say burden to place on someone like they're also going through life themselves. They have their own um, identities and experiences that they're working through at the same time. That uh, it's, mm -hmm. it's a lot to expect one person to be able to meet all those needs. And that was something we had mm -hmm. talked about within the parenting sphere too, of parents who either don't enjoy certain aspects of parenting, which is totally okay because it is very hard. Um, and varied as well. There's a lot. Yeah. <laughs> so much has to happen. Yeah. Oh my God. Yeah. Kids, kids need a lot <laughs> of attention mm. and stimulation and guidance and expecting that one or two parents are able to provide that on a consistent basis while also still maintaining their own personal identities, their own external lives, and, uh, you know, still having that sense of balance between everything and being a parent is just unrealistic. And there's almost mm -hmm. a sense of shaming parents who, you know, need to rely on daycare or need to rely on family members or community members to help them with kids. But when you look at it, like that wasn't, wasn't normal until recently, right? I want to say mm -hmm. the forties or fifties, if I'm remembering correctly, that that like single family mm -hmm. unit really became a mainstream idea. Um, mm -hmm. Don't quote me on that date though. It's like an abstract number that's coming to my head from another conversation I had with a friend. Um, uh, yeah, I do think it, I do think in like the the aftermath of World War um, of World War Two, there was a lot of like a re. I know that like there was a really strong emphasis media wise on it for sure that really solidified it. And you know, some some aspects of parenting are not fun, right? Like sometimes. <laughs> you either don't have the energy to do it or you just don't want to. And that's okay. Like that doesn't make you a bad parent. And especially if you have multiple children, like each one of those children is their own unique individual. They are their own unique person with their own unique needs. And you might not be able to provide that for them. And there's nothing wrong with, I want to say like outsourcing that to somebody that you trust who can provide that and wants to provide it right? Like I would much rather my future children have multiple people that they can go to and not just be dependent on me. Because what if something happens to me, then you have, you have nobody else that you can turn to. And that's, I want to say like, that's unethical. It's unethical parenting. <laughs> unethical parenting. Unethical parenting. I've been on like an ethics dilemma for the last month of like everything that we've been taught, those lies, it feels unethical. I'm like, this is not this is not for the benefit and well-being of everybody. This is, this is mm. not, this is not how things should be. <laughs> um, that actually reminds me of a TikTok I saw yesterday, I think. Um, that was really interesting. Um, it was a woman talking about her postpartum depression and expressing the things that she feels um, about it and the emotions that she's going through with it. And that also, I feel like ties into that is just like, even just not mentally being at your best or having your own issues going on, which I can imagine like postpartum depression has to be pretty devastating when you're feeling like you should be like on top of the world and super excited because you have a new baby and you just can't do that or you're having trouble connecting with them. And 
I know I've seen like so many sources say telling telling women like if that happens you know you're not a failure you're not a bad parent for being you know for not connecting for having you know mental um mental illness uh or issues coming in but I feel like that's probably still a pretty common feeling amongst parents who start to suffer with like that kind of thing um I feel like even that like tying into it with with having more people around that you also just have the support of other adults who know the situation and know the household if you have a child that is in some way difficult to deal with because they don't listen properly or maybe you have a child who you're starting to realize has like a neurodivergence and you're navigating the early stages of how to help them cope with that how to help them through that also just having that like surrounding of other adults that you can turn to and talk out different ideas and also just come into it with their own life experience so some of them may have more experience with uh, a child like that or they've they've seen that behavior before when you just haven't yourself and they're like we can try this or this might work let's try and do introducing this you just have more immediate resources of people who are part of the situation and can see it as well I'm really glad you brought up uh, postpartum depression uh, in terms of motherhood. And I think it's a conversation that needs to happen more often, um, mm -hmm. especially because it, it comes down to that like expectation versus reality that, yeah, it's a magical, wonderful thing that you now have this tiny human to take care of, but it is a huge life shift. Uh, and life shift. Yeah, sorry. My, when I said that, my brain was like, did we add extra letters to the word shift? <laughs> we did not. It was. <laughs> um, but it's such a big change that, yes, you have this deep love for this human. But when you think about it, when somebody comes into your life, you don't automatically know everything about them on the first day that you meet them. Mm -hmm. Like that comes with time of getting to know them and finding what works with them and what doesn't and how to speak to them and how to interact with them, how to, you know, what they need from you and what you need from them and what, what dynamic you're falling into. And it, it kind of comes down to as well with, even with multiple children, like they're all different. So what you did for the first child might be different than, than what you do for the second or third, right? Because each one is a different experience. And that mm -hmm. expectation that you're going to magically know how to be the perfect parent, which doesn't exist. Um, it's just not an accurate thing at all. <laughs> um, mm -hmm. it's, it's unrealistic that mm -hmm. any one person or group of people are going to know exactly what to do in every moment. There's a lot of trial and error and there's so much self-compassion that happens within that process. Um, and then adding on top of that, like if biologically you are the one that had the child, like you're also going through body image shifts, you're going through mm. relationship stress because now both of you or just you, if you're a single parent, you're sleep deprived, you're trying to figure this out while also navigating body image things and hormonal shifts. And 
like birth is traumatic like yes it's a miracle but like let's be honest with ourselves it's here a traumatic traumatic AF like <laughs> I think about it and I'm like hmm do I do I want that I don't know um but it's it, it still feels hush hush and it's especially with like mental illness that you're supposed to be happy about this big life change and, and mothers and fathers who find that they're having troubles adjusting. It's like an unspoken shame of like, well, this should be the happiest time of your life. And it's like, no, <laughs> this is a really stressful time in your life. This is a lot to take on. And I really liked what you said about having other adults to talk to. Um, so I've worked in childcare for many years. I, I was a respite mm. worker um, in a family with five kids um, who all spoke a different language than me. So that was, <laughs> that was a fun time. <laughs> <laughs> and they, they ranged in ages from three to nine. Um, and mm. then grew as I was there with them, I think for four or five years, if I'm remembering correctly. Um, and then I was also a nanny for a family with two kids under two. So I had like both spectrums of working with older kids on a regular basis and also working with newborn and toddlers. Um, and let me tell you, <laughs> you cannot reason with a toddler. <laughs> there is no reasoning. And if they want to read the same baby shark book for 40 minutes, you read the baby shark book for 40 minutes, right? Like there's a lot of interaction with this tiny human that is going on and it's lonely like if you don't have another adult to talk to it is so lonely going through that and I remember like if their mom was out running errands and I was at the house when she came back I was like oh my god please talk to me like on the days that she was gone the whole day as soon as I got home with my roommates I was a blabbermouth for sometimes hours because I was like I need adult interaction and I think about all these like stay-at-home moms that are so isolated in in this environment that they're balancing that isolation on top of everything else that's going on and that's not to say that all stay-at-home moms have no external support or community or group members but that traditional expectation that you're able to handle it all yourself is just it's a lot <laughs> Mm -hmm. It's really a lot. What you had said earlier on oh, reminded me, what was it about the, oh, there's a thing. I don't know if you've ever watched uh, Mama Dr. Jones. No. Um, she is really, really cool. She is uh, an OBGYN uh, and she makes lots of YouTube videos about anything relating to that. Um, she also does a bunch of the ones where she'll like react to like uh, a scene in a movie or she'll react to I didn't know I was pregnant and stuff those ones are really fun um, but something that she said a number of times she has four kids uh, and she said that when she had them she said she loved them as in she would take care of them she wanted to take care of them but she didn't like them yet She's like, they're new. I don't know them. I don't know their personality. I don't know anything about them yet. She's like, I, I love them as my children. I'm going to take care of them. But when she had them, she's like, I, she's like, some people do have this like just intense connection with their baby right away. Um, but she said for herself, she just, she did want to care for them. And she obviously wanted to make sure they were okay. 
but she didn't have that intense like bond with them the way other people will will describe it and she's like that's also okay um and it's very cool and that what you were saying reminded me of that um that that idea like that you're not there's an expectation of how you're supposed to react when you have a child and all of the there's a lot of expectation around like what is going to happen when you have kids um and and all of these things and there's a lot there's a lot of variance in that because there's a lot of variance in the human experience to begin with and it's it, it's it, so I feel like you know so just sort of pushed aside a lot of the time of like what those differences can be or what you know what you might what might happen that you're not necessarily expecting or your own reactions that you're not necessarily expecting either for sure for sure i think that not liking them it made me laugh because i i was thinking about uh some of my more introverted friends who have children and they're like i love my kids but i need to be in my house without you for a bit like that personal one-on-one -on -one time with yourself needs to still happen and I feel like there's this pressure on parents to want to spend every waking moment with their children and I'm gonna I want to I want to jump in there I think the pressure is more on much more on mothers than it is on fathers still I, yes I can I can definitely agree with that uh thank you for adding that in that's a, a very important mm -hmm. distinction to make um that if you don't want to spend every moment with your kids, that that somehow makes you a bad mother or that you are mm. um, not maternal enough, that there's something wrong with you. Mm -hmm. Really, it's like, okay, wait a second. If we're giving this leeway to fathers to take a break and like go have time on his own and whatever, why are we not doing that for mothers? And actually that reminds me of a TikTok again. TikTok has been awesome. I'm glad I ended up on like the educational side of TikTok. Um, mm. There's a woman talking about how mothers are expected to be primary caretakers, um, household managers, financial managers, meal prep person, cleaning lady. And she had like tallied up how much it would cost to outsource all of the things that she does in a day. And it was like $600,000 a year for everything that she does. Cause she was like, I manage everybody's schedules. I organize after school activities. I'm part of the PTA. I'm like doing all of these extra things that I one get no recognition for. It's just expected that I do them and I get no help for, because again, it's just expected that I do them. And it was, it made me so sad that there are women out there that are going through this and are so isolated in it and are underappreciated, right? Mm -hmm. And we see a lot, um, specifically in mom groups from posts that my mom friends have shared with me that dads are like glorified for doing the bare minimum. Uh, with parenting that it's like oh my god you changed a diaper what a great dad and it's like okay but that's your job right? you're you're 50 percent of parenting right and okay so this makes me think of my own like extended family um and no yeah. shit, we have a lot of traditional uh catholic 
values in our family. Mm-hmm. Um, <laughs> I kind of pieced out of that one heart. Um, <laughs> I was like, yeah, no, not for me. I'm going to go. Thanks. <laughs> um, but when I think about family gatherings, we do potlucks now because it's too much for my grandmother who's in her mid eighties now to cook for all 25 of us, which it never should have been her responsibility to do in the first place. She's they're already hosting everybody in their home. So we started doing potlucks and in each family unit that comes, it's always the mothers that are planning who's bringing what they're the ones that are organizing the email chain. They're the ones that are organizing the groceries for it. Then the cooking of it, the transporting of everything, plus wrangling all the children and organizing if it's Christmas gifts for people, or if it's mother's day, like special flowers and bouquets and all of this stuff. And then you get to the family gathering and all the men sit down at the snack table and they're served drinks and they're, you know, having a grand old time and the preparation of dinner, the serving of dinner, the gathering again of children to bring them up to dinner and everything else is falling to the women. They're the first ones to serve everything. They're the last ones to sit down to eat, but they're the first ones to get up to clear the table. And suddenly the men are all off you know, having their little guys chat after dinner and all the women have to clean up again. And I remember being so frustrated that like, as one of the cousins, I was like, why aren't my male cousins helping? Like, why are we doing all of the dishes? And it was just what was expected within Mm -hmm. the dynamic. Um, So that, you know, that was kind of a bit of a tangent, but coming back to those like traditional expectations of roles within the family and coming back to that idea of a traditional family unit it's just it feels toxic right like it it works for mm-hmm. some people some people thrive in that environment they love it and they're good to go they have no problem with it but i think for the majority of people we're starting to explore uh, and maybe the majority is a, an incorrect um allocation of of people but for many people it's an exploration of self outside of that identity. But that exploration mm-hmm. is terrifying because what happens when you walk away from everything you've known your whole life? Mm-hmm. Right? It's, it's scary to walk into that uncertainty and not know what's going to be on the other side and also not know how what you're leaving is going to react to you making a different mm-hmm. choice. Yeah, because I think it's easy as a as a family to take for granted that your kids are just going to do the same things that you did, that they're going to follow those same paths. And I think it's that's probably a big part of where like generational rifts kind of come from, is that a lot of people kind of realize, oh, I don't want to do things the exact same way you did, um, either because you're miserable or because that doesn't work for me. And it's it's hard I think on the other end for people to accept that they're either nowadays there is a different way when there wasn't when they were younger or there's a probably a level of resentment there's some people looking at it like I wish I had that choice and I don't and there's maybe a level of bitterness that if I had to go through this you have to too that's just the way things are um and I've seen that sort of like attitude echoed with a lot of things like when it comes to like free university or tuition forgiveness you see people who've been through it be like no they should have to pay like I did you're like why do you want young adults to go into debt right you should want them to not have to deal with that um and that that like kind of 
level of bitterness that it's like I had to do all of it myself so you have to too and there's such a shame I feel like that comes with outsourcing any of those kinds of jobs right if you're like yeah I feel like I don't I mean you might be able to speak to this more how like the attitude can be around someone who hires a nanny to help look after their kids um but I know I've seen people recently talking like or a little while ago I can't remember who it was but there was a there was somebody who um had talked about how they had someone come and clean their their apartment they had a, a house cleaner come in and do that um and they got so much backlash for having a cleaner you know and some people were worried about like the you know, current restrictions and stuff. And they did clarify that like that person comes in when they're not in the home and they, they coordinate everything online so that they don't actually see each other in person. So there's not that level of contamination, but they're also like this person, like this is what they do for a living. Like if, if people don't hire them to clean their house, this person doesn't have a job. And like, it does tie into that, the idea that like, there are some jobs that are like undignified or aren't, um, aren't really a valuable job or that kind of thing that it's like no work has to be demeaning or undignified if a person is treated with dignity because cleaning is a thing that needs to happen we can treat cleaners well um but they also just got a lot of flack for people being like why are you hiring a cleaner in the first place why do you need that you're just lazy you can clean your own apartment and they ended up like opening up about their own like mental illnesses and their struggle with like hoarding things and that they've tried in the past to keep their space clean and it's just something that's really hard for them to do but the basic level of cleanup each week is something that they can manage, especially when they know that there's somebody coming into the house to clean. So they know that if they leave a massive mess, it's a lot more work for this person. So it helps them to do the little things like taking care of putting away their clothes and like not stacking up piles of stuff everywhere and taking out garbage and things like that, because they know there's someone coming in to finish off a lot of those jobs for them and and do all of the the big stuff and it helps them manage their home and there was so much backlash for them for just even having help in the first place um because it's seen as such a bad thing to outsource any of that any like unless I guess unless you're like massively rich then some people are like expect you to do it but if you're in that like middle class or middle upper class there's this expectation that you do it yourself and that it's like wealthy people and either they I guess are allowed to because they're wealthy or some people think that oh they're just lazy and they they pay for people to do everything so that they don't have to lift a finger um and it's like seen as lazy for you to not clean your space it's like that's an easy task for some people and a very difficult task for other people even just in like basic things, right? I like look around my apartment, I cleaned my bathroom today because cleaning the bathroom is super easy because in Korea, I don't have a, a, a sink shower. So there's a lot of the sinks here where the shower is like a shower head that's connected to the sink. So you can use one of them at this at the time. Mine luckily is like separated and I have a little divider between where the, the shower section is and then where the other stuff is. But because it's all in one room, it's super easy for me to take the shower head and literally spray the entire room down. So I can 
go in there to shower and I'll just scrub the floors, clean the bathroom. And it's easy to do that, like for me once a week, but I have a pile of recycling because I don't like taking the recycling down because I have to do a bunch of trips up and down to take it. Um, and like, so even just parts of cleaning are going to be easier for some people and other parts are going to be harder. And it's, and it's fine, but we, it's this weird expectation that you should be good at all parts of managing a home, especially I say, especially as a woman and especially as a mother that like this magical expectation that you're going to have kids and suddenly you're a master home manager as well as master mother. Yeah. I, I have a hard enough time managing myself, let alone mm. other people. Like, yeah, it's, it's a ridiculous expectation and, and looking at, um, Okay, so there were two things that really came up. I had to write them down because I was like, I can't forget these. Um, so the yeah. my nanny experience. So yeah. um, I worked with them for a year and a half. And ultimately when I left, um, I was having severe mental health issues. Um, and I ended up taking uh, four months of like sick leave. Um, I didn't go back to the job. Like I just left because I couldn't, mm -hmm. I couldn't, I wasn't present enough to, care for the children properly and I recognized yeah. that and I was like you know what I'm I'm sorry I'd love to stay but I just I can't do this I need to go um but within that year and a half that I was there I got hired while she was pregnant with their second child um so they had an 18 month old at the time and then their son was born after and she was on maternity leave but she was still at home right so like I was with the kids for most of the day but she was still in and out um and when I told people that there was so much judgment of like, well, why can't she take care of her own kids? And I was like, because she's taking care of herself, right? Like she's using this time to care for the rest of the household because between the two of them, there were 11 children um, ranging from newborn to 18, right? So it was a blended family with a lot of different dynamics going on, a lot of different needs with each child. Um, and she was busy doing all of that other stuff and also taking care of herself postpartum. Um, but I was surprised by the judgment. I was like, whoa, wait a second. Like this need for assistance within the home is something that I can provide them and something I enjoyed doing until I wasn't able to anymore. And like, why is that a shameful thing? And like, they were a wealthy family. So having a, a private nanny was not out of the norm, especially in their neighborhood. Like I'd cross other nannies at the park and walking down the streets and at like the mommy and me groups that I would go to on occasion with them. Um, but that judgment was never directed at the father. It was always directed at the mother. And it was so frustrating to me of like, they're good people. Like they just want assistance and they don't want their children in daycare. So why would you not hire a nanny if you can afford one um and and going back to that uh when you were talking about cleaning so i i've done cleaning with most of the childcare positions that i do just because it's part of caring for kids right like you're going to do general cleanups of the room you're going to cook you have to do dishes right like there's a, a little bit of overlap between cooking cleaning and childcare. Um, and mm -hmm. laundry is, wow children <laughs> they are those are a lot of clothes <laughs> oh my god I okay side note because this is just one of the funniest stories from from childcare I have ever experienced and it happened like a movie in front of me so I was sitting on the floor 
with the toddler. We were reading books and I could hear her stomach gurgling. And she was like, she was a great pooper, good pooper, gold star for her. Um, but I could, I, I knew that this day was going to be a long one with a lot of diaper changes. She was having some gastro things happening and she farted. But when she farted, she actually pooped and it like shot out the back of her diaper like a water fountain up into the air and landed beside me on the floor and made like a very comical splat. Like I can hear the sound still years later. And I was like, I can't even be mad that I have to scrub this whole floor right now because this is just the funniest thing I have ever seen in my oh life. My and she just kept reading like nothing happened, right? She was like, yeah, well, I had to fart. I farted. It, it is what it is. That's and, a powerful poop. Oh, yeah. It was like high velocity pooping out of such a, a tiny human. I was, I was amazed. I was quite impressed. Um, but thinking of that, um, going back to the cleaning off of that side story, everybody loves a good poop story. I'm always known as the poop story sharer in our friend group. So it is what it is. Um, but looking at the cleaning, I started to think about how our society is designed for neurotypical people. But the other lie I think that we're encountering is that there are neurotypical people. <laughs> I, I think there's such a spectrum of functionality and existence that we convince ourselves that because this is the way we've always done it. When you said this is just the way things are, I had so many like alarm bells going off in my mind because that is one of the most dangerous phrases and most, um, it's like a barrier phrase to me, right? Like it effectively ends a conversation of like, well, this is just the way that it is. It's like, okay, wait to be minded, right? Um, but that idea that we were built to work a nine to five job plus balancing all of this other stuff is, it's bullshit. I'm just gonna say it's <laughs> bullshit. Like nobody is able to do that in every single capacity, every single day, right? Like we weren't built for that, that the way that our society is structured was a choice that was made. And because that choice was made, that means we can make a different choice, right? We can have a more accepting society to include that um, atypical and neurodivergent uh, group of people that they don't have to worry about fitting into this box Right. And as you said, like outsourcing cleaning, if that's something that you struggle with doing, like there's no shame in that. Mm -hmm. right? Even if it's just because you don't like doing it, right? Like if it has nothing to do with mental health or mental illness and you just hate cleaning, fuck it. Mm -hmm. Don't clean. Like, why are we forcing ourselves to conform to this idea of what living on this spinning freaking rock? in the middle of space means when like we can yeah. choose to do anything else. We don't have to do it this way just because that's the way it's quote always been done, which again mm -hmm. is- Also, it's not true. It's not true, right? Like that's one of the biggest- It's been lines. true for maybe a hundred years, 200 yeah. years, depending on what the thing is like. Exactly. And like my roommate and I were talking about uh, this a while ago that the responsibilities of a household right? If we're going back to that nuclear family idea. At the time when this was 
the norm, when this was like the new um, norm that was happening, one parent was able to work and afford to provide for the entire family, which meant that the other parent, typically the mother in this case, would be taking care of the household responsibilities, the children and everything else, right? Like that was almost her sense of employment. And mm -hmm. now we're in a position that that's not feasible. You cannot raise a family on a single income. Like it's just, I mean, no. you can, but it's extremely difficult and it's extremely really stressful, right? Like it's unnecessarily stressful that both parents mostly have to work. Both parents usually want to work, right? That this idea that your identity is rooted in your ability to have children as a woman um, is very damaging to people's sense of um, identity and exploration of what they want in out of life. But to expect that, you know, you're going to work that nine to five, 40 hour work week, and then come home and still do everything else that would have been done during that nine to five work week in the three hours that you have after work before your kids go to school, by the time you get extracurriculars and homework and dinner and everything done, like, that's, it's just not feasible, right? Like it's, you're coming down to a split expectation that is not rooted in what people are living in anymore. Mm -hmm. right? you're, you're trying to force a dynamic that just either isn't what people want or isn't working anymore and convincing people that there's something wrong with them for not wanting that or not being able to function within that. Um, and I really appreciated that you brought up neurodivergence and that outsourcing certain things is seen as a luxury for the privileged. That, you know, mm -hmm. you're above having to do this yourself. But if you're in a position of being lower income or middle class, as you said, and you do outsource it, that's somehow a mark of shame. Like what a double standard. <laughs> mm -hmm. Yeah. Mm -hmm. I mean, I, I, we probably let the rich get away with a lot that we, mm -hmm. you know, won't let the the average person get away with or even just like the middle class or even the upper middle class that it's you know it's easy to to see it as like a frivolous cost yeah. and that kind of thing but that's the thing if you have if you have the money for it because it is um it is work and it is worthwhile work and the person has to be paid properly for it I remember seeing some of the comments like one of the comments that the person had responded to was people criticizing I don't even know if she mentioned how much she paid the person but people criticizing her saying that she probably didn't pay them enough that that no they had like talked about and negotiated like uh what they felt was a good wage and a fair price for the amount of cleaning that that person does um and that's the thing it's like not cleaning someone's space is not demeaning work um if you're being treated properly and you're getting a proper paycheck for it you know, um, like, yeah, one, a single person paying you probably can't provide like benefits like dental and insurance and that's fine. <laughs> um, but they can give you the money to be able to, uh, afford those things if this is your main job. Yeah. Um, and, and yeah, this, this weird thing that like, I think on that other end, people do look down on anybody who does cleaning or does those kinds of tasks because it's seen as like, this is something someone should be able to do on their own. And you're not really doing anything special because, you know, it's something that everybody does, yeah. but it's like, it doesn't like 
A, it's a job that needs to get done. And B, like, it doesn't need to be massively special. Like, yeah, technically, if it comes to like teaching your stuff, when you're looking at like elementary school, most of what we teach in elementary school is stuff that most people would consider common knowledge topics, right? Like how to read and write, basic uh, basic math skills, basic science principles. Yeah. And you can, you can have, we could have every kid stay at home and have their parents teach them that, but then their parents can't do anything else. Yeah. <laughs> like then that's their whole day is teaching their kids all of these things. And there have been, yeah, lots of points in history where there was no school and the things that were important for the kid to know, their parents taught them at home. But we've decided as a society that there's a lot that people need to know by the time they become an adult. It makes more sense to put children into an area in a small group where someone uh, who that is their their job can do that. Even though, yeah, it's, some, it's something that like, a parent can probably also do, but it allows for more freedom of movement and us to specialize more because the parent doesn't have to do, not every parent has to tell their kids everything. You have one person who can do that for a whole community yeah. is a much more efficient way to make it work. You know, this idea that just because something is, is a daily task it's the same thing like if somebody has someone come in and cook, if they're really not great at cooking um, or they have very specific nutrition needs and they can hire somebody who is good at cooking those kinds of meals and can help them to kind of stay on track with certain eating, especially if they have a very particular diet and it's difficult to stick to, but also important for their health. Um, if you have someone who can come in and cook those meals for you and help you do that, that prep work for your week, like it's not a, it's not a bad thing just because you could do it yourself. Exactly. Yeah. I really liked what you said about, um, it being like immoral. I think either you said that or it made me think of that. Um, but mm -hmm. that, that double standard between, um, the rich and everybody else <laughs> is that it's somehow immoral for mm -hmm. anyone who's not rich to engage in the same behaviors um, and that they're automatically not treating the other person right. Um, even mm -hmm. though I've heard some horror stories about nannies and house cleaners that work for very wealthy families that are treated like absolute garbage, right? It has nothing to do with um, the amount of wealth that somebody has the amount of wealth that somebody has does not determine the respect that they have for other people. Um, that is very much yeah. an individual um, sense of who they are. It, it has nothing to do with because they have a lot more money than anybody else um, or than other people rather. Um, it's very much a them as a person thing. Um, yeah. yeah, and that comes back to that sense of luxury, right? And like that privilege and advantage of if you're wealthy, you're gonna get a lot away with other things there's a different set of rules for you that nobody else has to follow and if anybody dares to follow one of the rules that you've been allotted that you know mm -hmm. that's somehow a mark against them mm -hmm. yeah 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 I <laughs> sometimes I get it's so like, overwhelmed thinking about this because it's, it's it's really wild it is and it's so frustrating to see like how hard people work 
to mm-hmm. try to be better and they're just met with barrier after barrier after barrier mm-hmm. and that's just like we're just talking in this sense of like financial barriers not even any kind of like gender identity race issues like any other systemic problem that people might be facing like that just adds on to everything else and there's like a different set of rules for every um yeah that you encounter right and then you have so much overlap between everything else that it's it's a lot like it's it frustrates the hell out of me thinking about how we have created a society that is so divisive 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 yeah sometimes (laughs) and I don't know how to say them it's like when I thought epitome was spelt e-p-i-t-o-m-y and I thought epitome the proper spelling of epitome was a totally different word and I thought that until I was like 23 years old so you know (laughs) but yeah um this creation of society that's so divisive when we're being sold this narrative that that's actually how we're staying united and that's it's just not true it's just simply not true Mm-hmm. Um, and you know everybody I feel like as part of the human race has some sense of well not even um, hold on I'm just going to scrap that first part of the sentence we're going to start over <laughs> two different thoughts um, but it's like a basic desire. <laughs> seriously it's a basic human desire to belong and to be accepted by people right yeah that, that is a shared commonality across all of humanity that we mm-hmm. are built for community. We're not built to be completely independent. And um, I find, especially with women now, like we're in the complete opposite of, you have to be this fiercely independent person who doesn't need anybody, who has to be like self-made, a self-starter. And like the term self-made is a whole other thing because nobody is self-made. I'm sorry, that's just <laughs> factually incorrect. Like you received help from somebody along the line at some point, but it wasn't just you. But uh, that's a whole other conversation. Um, but this, it feels like a, a radicalization of independent exploration to discover what works for you. Like that feels like a rebellion in a way to stray away from what we've been taught as the norm. And as I said earlier, like that's scary for some people to walk away from that or to even counter it, right? Especially if your close support system or, or, close group of people don't share the same beliefs or values that's mm-hmm. another um honestly it feels like a burden like at the burden of burden of educating people um on on a different way of life right and if they're not willing to engage in that conversation if they're not willing to explore a different way if they're rooted in that belief of well that's just how things are then there's a whole like grieving process of feeling like you're leaving them behind when really everybody has that independent choice to make of whether they want to follow suit with um, keeping with that way things have always been or whether they're willing to explore an outside um, identity and application of, of fulfillment and success outside of that societal expectation. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I want to tie that back to what you 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 touched on um, some intersectionality and like the ways that that can play into it, and I wanted to dig into that for a moment as well because 
there's you're right like there's definitely there's different rules depending on who you are and how you present and what people think of you and you get that idea of like the model minority where like if you're if you're not not white if you're visibly not white it's very easy for people to expect a lot of you and even like even on the level of like being a woman you often have to have to be a lot beyond what a man has to do to get that same level of recognition and when you add any other like any other thing onto that it becomes harder to meet that goal and meet that expectation of what people want from you and to rein in the the other parts of it as well right there's there's a level of like women you know will get called emotional right if if we get angry if we show any level of emotion but if you add if I add in being black to that I can't get super angry and I'm luckily not a super angry person but there's a level there's a level to which like if I get angry I am stepping into a stereotype so there's you know this idea of having to rein that back even if it's a, a genuinely infuriating situation uh, because of how it's going to change, how it's going to lean into people's, people's expectations of how I would behave and what it's going to reinforce within their head of what kind of a person I am, that it makes it much easier to dismiss me if it's, oh, she's just an angry black woman and that's just what she, you know, that's just how she is. And it ties in, like I've seen as well, you get like um, some particularly like uh, gay or bi or or anyone who is cis and but part of the LGBTQ community who you see turning on trans people and finding ways to invalidate trans people as this way to try and like appease the, appease the cishets that like, are bigoted and it's some way of like oh I'm you know I'm more like you I think they're being ridiculous I think you know it's too much um as just a way to you know appease the the majority group and and try to like fit into whatever those those roles are and just divide the community uh even more than than it already is I'm sure you've seen being in it that there's definitely like lots of division within the community already because fairly enough it's a community based on people who have a similar thing that is inherent to who they are um but that has nothing no bearing on how you are brought up and what your belief system is and any of that so you're going to clash with people because you might both have the same identity you might both be gay you might both be bi but that doesn't mean that you're going to agree on everything um but yeah there's so much that ties into expectation with like how with how you look and what people what people expect from you depending on how you look you might have to act more calm or more put together you have to present yourself as more put together be careful about how you do your hair and things because it's going to cause issues and make you know people within the majority feel really uncomfortable and that comes back to well you have to change it because you need to conform to whatever we're we're expecting for you um and so it's it does get very scary to step outside of that and depending on the way in which you're stepping outside of it and where you're stepping outside of it at times it becomes dangerous or physically dangerous to do so as well 
which is like it's whole other deep discussion but like it's I guess it's also that that line of like where where and when and how do you step out of expectation um, while doing so safely I've definitely seen a lot of those you know those sorts of things this month with people um, in particular people who want to come out but they're in a not safe situation you luckily I see a lot of like queer influencers who will say like your safety is the most important thing. Like, don't feel it's the same thing happens in October when um, when National Coming Out Day happens. That they're like, you don't, you're not obligated to come out. Like, yes. you might want to, and that's great. But if you're not in a safe situation, it's much better to wait uh, until you are in a safer space to be able to do it. Like, don't put yourself in danger just because it's Pride Month and you. Like there's ways to celebrate from the closet. There's ways to engage in the community in a way that's that will hopefully not like lead to your harm. And it's like your your physical and mental safety are the like that the number the number one thing. So stepping out of those expectations, depending on what that expectation is and where you happen to be, like it ranges from uncomfortable and like difficult because you're gonna have people who don't understand it and don't get it. And, you know, it can be like this minor frustration when you're, if you're trying to explain something to someone, you're trying to explain demisexuality to someone and they're like not getting it, you know, it's not the end of the world, but it's a frustrating moment to like actually dangerous if you're coming out as, as queer or if you're stepping out of an expected role uh, in an area where people really don't, uh, people really are not going to accept it and are okay using violence if they if they find out you're a part of a group that they don't like. Thank you for sharing all of that. I, it was such an impactful um, disclosure with your experience uh, as like having to manage your anger as a black woman in any situation. And I look at the responsibility that women face um, in general, out just as, as women, of managing other people's perceptions um, of you, right? And, and what you added on as being a Black woman, that you have to be extra careful to not be seen as this stereotype by people and to have to worry about it. Like, it's so much extra brain space that should be going to you and to your life and to your passions and, and what you want that is being wasted because other people are so closed-minded and just lost within their own bigotry that you're now forced to manage that for your own safety and it, it I don't really have words for it right like it's I'm glad that people are talking about it more and that there are open spaces, but there's still so much work that needs to be done um, in terms of creating a safe space for people to experience being human, right? Like experiencing anger is a regular human emotion, right? You're, you're going to get upset by things, but then to have to shut that down for your own safety is bullshit like I, I feel like I've said it's bullshit or it's horseshit so many times in this conversation because it's just 
it's ridiculous and it almost feels like a defense mechanism in a way of like having to manage your experience and other people's for your own safety that mm -hmm. you know it's it's not your responsibility it shouldn't be your responsibility to do it right and, and mm -hmm. in those situations it becomes something you have to be aware of mm -hmm. um, and I think especially within the workplace as women, that's something that um, mm -hmm. that we face a lot of, of not being seen as emotional. And um, so I started a, a new job recently. I'm going through the training process with a new startup company. And mm. uh, yeah, I don't think I told you about this, actually. So. No, you haven't yet. Okay, well, I got a job <laughs> um, with a new startup company that's looking at... Um, bridging the gap between mental health services for people who are mentally ill, which is where most of our focus has been as a healthcare system of like treating those in the most need. Um, but then we have this gap of everybody in between and it's particularly affecting um, older Gen Z and millennials because we are considered that burnout generation that we're still trying to make that old system work, but we're starting to see that it doesn't. And they're not necessarily at the um, point of being considered mentally ill, but there's lack of mental health, right? They're not thriving in their situations. They're just surviving. So um, this company is aiming to provide services to people who are in that category of um, existing right now. But uh, going back to that emotional experience, I was really worried coming on to a team that has two male co-founders. The lead reflector is a man as well. Um, I now know that he's part of the LGBT community. Um, so that was a really cool disclosure. Um, and as far as I knew, the other reflectors that had been hired um, were also men. So until our first group meeting, I didn't know that there was another woman on the team other than me. And I was really worried about that coming from a corporate job before this where mm -hmm. women had to behave like men in the workplace, which this is even toxic to men as well, like not being able to express emotion benefits, mm -hmm. right? Like it's damaging to yeah. everybody. I, I don't want that to um, be misrepresented in this conversation. Like we are in no way saying that um, it's, it's an unfair thing that's only affecting women. It is very much affecting men as well. Mm -hmm. um, but this team at the forefront of everything Emotions come first. We start every meeting and every interaction with an emotional and physical check-in. That like nice. everybody states what they're thinking, feeling, and experiencing physically, mentally, spiritually, and emotionally before we get going. Um, and they acknowledged um, the indigenous lands that we we're working on and how like impactful that is in our community. Like it is, I try not to use this word a lot because I feel like it's lost meaning, but like it feels like a woke environment, right? Like I feel like people mm. are trying to work on creating a new culture um, of interaction. And I remember saying like in one of my first um, messages back to them, because we work through voice notes, um, that I was really nervous to talk about my emotional experiences going into this and that it was refreshing to be met with openness and understanding from men in a workplace because I have felt in every other job that I've had outside of childcare, that was the only one that I was allowed to have emotions in. 
that I felt like I had to hide that part of me and just pretend that I was like a go, go, go productive person. Um, and it became a defense mechanism of like, oh no, I'm fine. When really like, I need to go cry for 20 minutes and have a total breakdown so that I can come back and do my job because mm -hmm. my job is not the only aspect of my life that I'm engaged in, right? And that double standard of um, not being able to express emotions um, within social contexts or, or mm -hmm. workplace contexts uh, as women is damaging to us, but it's also damaging to men, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah, they definitely also have a level, a, like a set of, ex of acceptable emotions that they can express. And they might have like a more range, at least like it, it's maybe more considered like okay for a man to be angry in the workplace, particularly like a boss or supervisor um, has that allowance, but there's still definitely a big taboo on them being sad in the workplace, yes. right? That like you, he, a, a man could probably could be angry and can you know yell at his employees if they're not doing something right. But if he starts angry crying, it's gonna like that's gonna change the perception really fast. Yeah. His credibility is gonna be shot from that point forward. Yeah, he's gonna be a sissy boy, right? Mm -hmm. um, yeah, yeah. And I, I think about like the workplaces that I've been in, especially corporate. They are dominated by straight white men like our mm -hmm. recognition wall for the first year that I was there every single person in the 12 awards that were given for our district every single one of them was an old white man and it wasn't until just before I left that my boss a again though white woman even though that was weird to say woman woman <laughs> a white woman was the first to be recognized on that wall even though we had other women of color that were performing just as well as her that were not recognized at all. And the mm -hmm. leaders that we had that were women happened to be women of color. And they had to work 10 times as hard to be taken half as seriously in any of the positions. And I remember mm -hmm. having conversations with them about how they could not, it's like not being able to show weakness in any way, mm -hmm. being emotional is being perceived as weak. And then top that on or add that on top of being um, a woman, like it's just, it's never ending, mm -hmm. right? Like it, the expectations just keep getting higher and higher and higher. And you can't, you can't ever reach the expectation that is there because they just keep adding things on. And I say they as a society, right? Like, yeah, yeah. Not one group of people that's doing it. Like it is a structural system that we're, we're facing. Um, mm -hmm. And then bringing in intersectionality, as you said, like it's just more expectations. Mm -hmm. And even in the way yeah, that you present yourself, right? Like, as you had said, mm -hmm. your physical appearance has to have more attention being put into it to be taken seriously. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, even that level of like, um, you know, I, I remember like, I, I don't, I probably talked about wanting a tattoo for quite a long time. Um, and I still like, I want one on my wrist. I already know what I wanted to say. And I've wanted it since I was 18. But it was one of those things where like, at first, when I was 18, I just didn't have a lot of money. Um, and then I started working at, at, you know, where I was doing all the marching and stuff. And I didn't want to wrap it because fairly enough, if you're playing a historical character that wouldn't have had a tattoo on their wrist, you have to, you know, clean it. You have to not have it visible. They were, I had 
colleagues that did and they've just wrapped it in a bandage during the day so that you know no one can see and if anyone asks they can just say I hurt my wrist and you know fine um and then coming here they had like even on the on the application they asked if you had any tattoos if you had any piercings other than your ears done um that were invisible areas and if if they were invisible areas you had to send a picture of what it looked like um because they're in Canada, it's a little bit more open to, you know, I've, I've seen teachers have tattoos. Obviously, there's some things that are acceptable and some things that are not. If it's something that a could, student couldn't have on their shoulder, like you can't have like swear words tattooed all over your arms. You can't obviously have like slurs or, or like um, that kind of thing, uh, anything racist, anything like homophobic. You can't have that tattooed on your body and work and you're going to you're going to get told that you have to cover it going to going to work at a school that's absolutely valid um you know uh but I've seen at least in in Ontario you know or at least with high school teachers I don't know how much you see it with elementary school teachers but I've seen other high school teachers who do have visible tattoos um and it's not a big deal but coming here though they didn't say that you absolutely couldn't have a visible tattoo that kind of seemed to be uh, the the idea that there's a level of presentability and, and professionalism that you have to follow within within the role uh, over here. I wanted to like back up as well and talk about come back to talking about expectation because luckily or unluckily um, that's it's been my entire life that I have been a minority in an area usually surrounded by white people now I'm surrounded by Korean people but I've never looked like the people around me so there's a level of like being different that I'm I'm aware of and having people kind of like look to me as the one that uh, as like the one minority in the room to make the decision on something um or the one like source that they can go to or that kind of thing and like for better or worse I'm used to that role it's something that I've, I've been in, it's something that like a lot of, of people of color have been in, but it was really interesting coming here because the first couple of months, I saw a lot of my white colleagues starting to go through dealing with that because here you're a foreigner, right? You're not, you're very visibly not Korean, you're different and people will take the way that you behave and you act, not everyone, there's a lot of people obviously that understand that every foreigner is different people from different countries are different but there are people who will who will take how you act and ascribe that to all foreigners or all people from your country they'll say oh if you're rude they're going to say all americans are rude or all foreigners are rude right there there's and that's something that i'm i'm aware of already that that if i'm surrounded by white friends and i act in a certain way there's a possibility depending on the people in that group that they might say that's how black people act. There's a level of being of, of being aware that like, I'm considered like a, a model of the people who look like me, whether I want to be or not, I don't get a choice in that. It's just a part of my, my uh, position with, you know, with looking the way that I do. So coming here, it wasn't, it wasn't a shock that like, 
people are going to look at me for an expectation of what Canadians are like, an expectation of what foreigners are like, an expectation of what black people are like. That's not, it's not a new thing for me, uh, but it was really interesting to see particularly my white colleagues going through this and being really frustrated by, you know, these either being judged by what the last teacher had done right? That they're like, why are they judging me based on something that someone else did that is a totally different person? Or getting really ignorant questions about people from, from America or people from Canada or people from England. Um, and it was a very difficult transition for a lot of them to suddenly go through having this really big level of expectation just by virtue of what you look like that they never had to deal with before. And now they're suddenly, it's the closest they're gonna get to being like that, that level of minority where you're, you know, where people look at you and you're different and they're going to start judging you based on the actions of other people. It's also why I get really frustrated when I see stories of foreigners doing really stupid stuff here because I'm like, I know, I know that like, luckily my coworkers who know me know me well enough, like are not going, and especially the ones who also traveled to other places are not going to judge me based on what, you know, some rando does, but I know that there is a general sense and the ones who don't know me as well may kind of look at that and go, oh, that's how foreigners are. I wonder if she's like that too. I wonder if she does that as well, that a lot of us get kind of frustrated when we see foreigners doing stupid things because we're like, that reflects on all of us. And it's really easy for some people to say, well, no, it doesn't like everyone is, everyone is different. They do their own thing. And I'm like, if you really believe that the actions that like the stupid actions of some foreigners are not going to reflect on everybody else, you are not paying enough attention. Yeah. Like it, it does. Obviously there are people that understand. There are people that get it, that everyone is going to be different and that some people are just going to be stupid, but there's a lot of people who will also just be xenophobic. They'll use it as an excuse to say, well, look, you know, these foreigners are bad. We shouldn't have these English teachers here because look how they behave, right? Look how they're ruining our country. We shouldn't have them here. We should not We should get rid of the program, right? You have to fight back about that by doing a good job. And unfortunately, by being a model minority is like kind of the, you know, the, the role that you step into. And it's a role that I'm like, used to but it is interesting to see how much people who are new to it really wanted to push back against it and were how uncomfortable it can really be to suddenly be in a situation where everyone is judging you based on the actions of people who you don't even know and who you don't agree with but that is just the the way that it is and there's not much you can do to to completely change their perception other than just doing your best and doing well at the job and showing them that like, regardless of what other people act like, you're going to do your best and understanding that some of them are still gonna judge you based on what other people do because they have this idea that all foreigners or all people from America or all black people or whatever are conglomerate and are the same group and have the same thoughts and do the same things that unfair attribution of responsibility, right? To be yeah. a model minority, um, as you were saying. And I, you know, I'm not, ex I'm not happy that your um, white colleagues are experiencing this. Obviously I don't, I don't want anybody to be experiencing this, but mm -hmm. I hope that that experience can shift perspectives 
and start conversations within their own groups of people, right? And mm -hmm. I'm seeing this a lot here in Canada. And I, I'm really glad that you shared that experience about foreigners as well um, with your experience in South Korea. And I'm, I'm glad this is happening like after you've been there for a while. So you've, mm. um, I wanna say like interacted with different cultures more and can speak to both sides of being here in Canada and also um, <clears throat> in South Korea. Um, mm -hmm. Hold on a sec, my brain, <laughs> that thought left, like three more came down again. This keeps happening to me. Um, Let it load. <laughs> yeah, seriously. Um, I took a nap earlier. So like, that's the only reason that I'm able to be this present right now. <laughs> <laughs> But yeah, that, that experience of like having to decenter the self, that's what I was trying to say, of recognizing that the opinions and judgments that other people are projecting on you has nothing to do with who you are as a person, but rather the structural context that they have been exposed to as the person you're interacting with. Right? And I see that a lot within the online community right now with people speaking up more openly um, as members of minority groups that when they're calling out behavior, it's like that, um, like the white guilt and the white fragility of, well, I didn't do it. So why are you getting mad at me? Right. And it's like, no, no, no. We're trying to have a conversation here. We're trying to learn what it's like for everybody else right you have to decenter the self to understand that and in what you shared i i can hope that their experiences will lead them to a sense of decentering um mm -hmm. and you know what as you said like you're used to being the person that stands out like that's sad that's it's it, it feels sad to to see that that's that's where we're at right and like I'm, I'm happy that you've come to a place of peace with it um or as as much as you've shared that, that you're in a place of peace with it but um yeah I mean I'm maybe in a way lucky because I've never walked into a room full of people who look like me yeah. So it's not an expectation. And I've thought about this before that if I did, I don't know what I would do <laughs> because it's not an experience I've ever had. Mm -hmm. um, and it would be weird to me, to be honest. It'd be <laughs> weird to me to walk into a room full of like, particularly like mixed black people um, and just be like, wow, we all look similar. Yeah. I, I mean, we probably wouldn't because there's so much variation in skin tone, but even beyond that, like it just be very a very like different experience for me because I've not done that where I've been there's and I mean it's it's one of those things that like I think I guess similar to anyone who's had a thing just be true since they were born it's not um as much of a big deal as it would be if I shifted into it later on if I had grown up in a community where everyone looked very similar to me and then I moved somewhere completely different where I stood out I might have had a harder time adjusting but at the very least because it's been my constant in life it's not something that is like super weird to me and I've had some colleagues ask if it's like what was weird coming here and I said it's 
the place I grew up was so white. Like <laughs> I lived out in like rural Ontario. Like there's, you know, I was regularly the um, only person of color in my class. Hello, Jenny. She started collecting all the plants trying to get to the desk. Hi, Bubba. She's like, mm. I want to join the podcast too. Wants to be part of the game. Oh, look at the tail. Happy cat. Happy kitty. Hello, baby. She looks She's so precious. Okay. You want, I know. I put things in your lie down spot when I work. I'm sorry. <laughs> there you go. Sorry, not to interrupt. I just didn't want everything crashing down around my laptop right now. No, this is a, this is a good interruption. Jenny's like, hello. I hear you're talking about big life things. I came to provide kitty support. Okay, now you can yes. go. Ma'am. Okay, you're just gonna stand there. <laughs> Tail in the mouth. Seriously. Okay, bye. Thanks for visiting. <laughs> She's very cute. She is something. But, <laughs> but yeah. <laughs> A lot of things, many yeah. things. She is very cute. I will give her that. She is very cute. She's been in a mischievous phase lately, but I can't blame her. Oh, that's fun. She's that's fun. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. But yeah, I it's it's something that at least for me is a just a part of my life. And it doesn't phase me all that much. I talk to like this is a bit of an aside. I talk I've I've talked to I remember walk, hanging out with some friends and walking around with them and there was one other black person in the group and we started talking about how um she had mentioned that people stare at her when she's walking around here um and I was like yeah yeah that's a pretty common experience and a lot of our um white friends were very surprised that that we got stared at as often as we did so I'm like, some people will stare at anyone who look looks different, but you do get a lot of people who, you know, have maybe seen a black person on TV, but just haven't seen one in person yeah. and they stare. And like, for me, the, the level of like, you know, being a, my students, like first exposure to black people is also not something that is specific to here either. Right. Like, you know, the, the sort of area that I, I grew up in, like, and I worked at day camps there as well. There was also situations there where I was, for a lot of kids, they're either their first um, introduction to a Black person or the first Black person that they were close enough to. Like, maybe they had seen one in public before they'd seen them on TV, but I was the first person that worked with them on a daily basis where they could actually ask me questions about things they didn't understand. Um, and they could engage in conversation and actually get to know me on a personal level. Yeah. Um, and that that kind of difference. So for me, it's not like a new thing. And like, when it comes to kids, I love that. I, I think it's like really, really like fun when they, you know, get to get to know me and they like learn a little bit more about things. And I never mind questions that come from them because it's always pure curiosity. Um, you know, there's questions that that do annoy me, but even here, a lot of them are curiosity. Like I have had adults here ask about my hair and how I get it the way it looks because it's not a natural hair pattern here. It's not something that they're used to. So they would assume like most of the people that you see who do have curls here, they permed it. So they'll ask if it's like, if it's a perm, I'm like, no, it's just natural. Like this is just what my hair does. Um, and that kind of thing. Cause it just doesn't necessarily occur to them that that's a, this is a natural hair look um, and that kind of thing. But 
there's questions I've gotten in, in, in Canada that annoy me more, more so when I get like people asking about my, uh, about my background or my heritage, especially when they haven't known me very long. I used to get that at the end of tours sometimes. I've given this, these people a 50 minute tour and they're asking where I'm from. And I'm like, I was like, you know, I'm in customer service mode at the time, so I just answer. But then afterward, I'm like, that's like not an appropriate question to ask your tour guide that you've known for 50 minutes. That's a very invasive question. Like you don't need to know that. And you also guaranteed do not ask the white tour guides the same question. Like guaranteed you're not, like you might ask them where they go to school or where they, like what city they grew up in, but you're going to expect that the answer is a Canadian city. You're not expecting that they're from somewhere else. Yeah. You know? Yeah. And it's almost like this, I've heard it referred to as um, the privilege of giving you their attention of like, well, mm -hmm. showing interest in you and where you're from, even if you're from here. Uh, mm -hmm. like you should be grateful that I'm showing interest in in this aspect of your life and, and as you said like you wouldn't ask a white person these things when mm -hmm. a, a white person in Canada has just as much probability of, of being from somewhere that isn't Canada mm -hmm. right like it, it it's so ridiculous to expect that those are appropriate questions to ask people especially as you said that you don't have a connection with at all mm -hmm. yeah it's definitely like inappropriate and it's one of those things like over here that's a valid question because I very much don't look like everyone around me and I'm working on my Korean but it's not great yet so it's a it's a valid question to ask where are you from that's a fine conversation starter because I'm pretty clearly a foreigner and there's there's very few like black people who were like born here so you it's it's a pretty likely assumption when you come across someone in public who looks different. 99% of the time, they're a foreigner who's, you know, working here and they're going to be here for a bit and then they're going to leave. Um, and so it's, it's a, a much more valid question to ask in a more homogenous society. But then back home, it's one of those things I've gotten it from, I've gotten that question from other people of color, but there's definitely a difference in, I guess, how it comes across, whether people realize it or not. Um, and I, I also like don't go into it thinking that a lot of like people who ask these questions are being malicious. Like I, I know for them it comes off as pure curiosity, but the the back and forth being that when it's if it's coming from another person of color, it comes as pure curiosity because they deal with the same thing. If it's coming from another black person, they're usually trying to kind of figure out do we have a shared heritage. Yeah. Um, I've had like I remember one of the families that I that came to the day camp that I worked at and they they were there every year so I knew the parents pretty well the mom worked actually at the same place my mom worked so it's quite a drive to get back to there to pick up her kids so she usually was one of the last parents to come pick up her kids and I understood completely because my mom would sometimes be stuck in two hours of traffic coming home on those routes so I I'm like if she's a little bit late it's not a big deal. I know the drive that she has to do. And I know that it is a terrible for traffic that time of day. Um, but uh, I remember her and I think her and her husband were quietly talking one day about like, they were wondering like where I was from or what my heritage was, but they like didn't want to ask because they didn't want to be rude. And then <laughs> their daughter came, had to like listen to them talking and she came up and just asked me where I was from. <laughs> <laughs> and then she went back and, and told them. 
um, because they wanted to know, but they were trying to be respectful and they didn't want to ask an invasive question. But at that point, I'd known them for like three years. So I was like, this is totally fine for you to ask, especially because they want to know, like, do you share a heritage, especially because I got along well with their kids and and I quite like both of their kids are very sweet. Um, and they were, you know, curious about whether or not there was shared history there at all. Um, but I feel like a lot of people, a lot of white people who ask the question don't realize that when they ask that question, it comes off with an air of you're not from here, right? You're clearly different. You're not from here. I'm from here, which is already wrong. Yeah, but like, like that's already <laughs> incorrect. But this idea of like, oh, I'm Canadian, but you clearly aren't because you're not white. Not correct. But then like, but, but then still will like ask the question and be like, well, you know, where are you from? And I think that even those with the best of intentions who are purely curious are not digging into that level of like, that very much comes across as an othering question, right? It very much assumes that this person didn't grow up in Canada or that they have pretty recent history from somewhere else. That's what you're kind of expecting to hear is that they're from from another place because they don't look like you um and it kind of misses a lot of a lot of other a lot of things about you know the diversity of people who live in Canada uh and also just the assumption on their own part that like they are what a Canadian looks like yeah I'm really glad you said that because as you were sharing I was thinking about this TikToker that starts his um, videos to white people by saying hey colonizer and um, I know exactly who you're talking about okay cool I know exactly I love his videos so they're so pressed they're so upset every time oh my god and it's like dude if you're, if you're not mad at him calling you a colonizer you're part of the problem like yeah. like he's right we we weren't here first, <laughs> like we're, we weren't at all. At some point, your family heritage came here to a land that was already established. Uh, mm -hmm. And that that had been jumbling around in my head. And I was like, okay, how, where, this will come up at some point. We will, we will hold it for the, for another part. Um, but I'm glad it came around because that idea that um, just because you're white means that you're, you're the like image of Canadian is just mm -hmm. horrifically misinformed. Um, and especially now there's, um, I want to call it like a divisive awakening is, is what's coming to my mind right now with the discovery of the 215 children at the Kamloops mm -hmm. uh, residential school in British Columbia mm -hmm. and how how dismissive people have been about it. Um, and my mind is coming back to the Halliburton uh, hockey team that passed away in that bus crash and how there was like an entire month of mourning and there was vigils and fundraisers and like national news stories every freaking day about it and like, it was the center of every interaction that people had. And suddenly with this discovery, it's like, oh, well, it's history. And it's like, but it's not history. 
it is still very much an open and active part of our communities here. Like to mm -hmm. negate the fact that you are living on indigenous land right now is ignorant and naive, but then to also dismiss it as history when there are still people alive who were in residential schools growing up. And when the last one closed a year before I was born, like that's not history. That is very much current. A year that, after. Oh yeah, sorry, a year after. Oh my God, a I forgot. After, a, year I born. Yeah. <laughs> a year after I was born, right? Like that, that's not history. That is very much a mm -hmm. current reality. And to, to believe that those communities, like that indigenous communities are not Canadian in this case, or that anybody who's not white is othered from being Canadian is, it's just wrong, right? Mm -hmm. we're, we're seeing so many conversations between people happening of one, calling it out. And I, I'm glad to see that happening more frequently with groups of people um, and specifically with my own friend group. I, I really enjoy that we have such a diverse um, gathering of people and that we can have open conversations. But to see that some people just aren't upset about it is like, how, how dare you? Like, those, mm. and those are the people that are in the comments of that, those hey colonizer videos that are like, how dare you call us this? It's like, but, but it's true. <laughs> like, mm. if you're upset about it, maybe sit down and, and do some reflecting on why you're upset and why you feel entitled to something that isn't yours. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah. And it's one of those things as well that like, you know, I could, I could understand if you had a black person starting off their videos with hey slave owner like I could understand where people would be like there's a bit of a disconnect there because because of because of like partly time and also just the way roles have changed over time um, but it wouldn't connect because the the effects of colonization are still constantly all around us and a lot of us still strongly benefit from that colonization happening, what has happened and what is happening currently. Um, and and that, that kind of thing. And it's also something as well, like I've seen the beginnings of his other videos when he has people who are uh, not, um, who are non-Indigenous uh, or particularly who are white but are respectful to him, he usually doesn't like start off calling them hey colonizers, but it makes people so, it makes so many people with, especially and he's pointed out like the like white savior complex that some people have, like it makes them so uncomfortable and they're like, I'm, I'm an ally, I'm here to help you, but you have to make it comfortable for me to help you. Yes. I have to be made comfortable in this space and he, duetted a video recently from there's another creator I don't know if you've seen the video but there's another creator who um talked about that and about the fact that like his movement and his like he doesn't have to hold space for you to be comfortable that's not his responsibility it's not like something he needs to do like he doesn't need to make space for you in his movement if you want to be a part of the movement that's something that you have to take the steps to step into that role and be uncomfortable with the past of your ancestors. 
right? No, you didn't personally do those things and no one's saying that you did, right? No one's saying that it's your particular fault that things in the past have happened. It, they're saying take responsibility, we take responsibility for the fact that like there are ways in which we benefit from certain systems and that we're put into positions of privilege through for the most part stuff that we don't choose right you're not choosing your level of privilege people who are underprivileged are not choosing that level of privilege people who are overprivileged are not choosing that level of privilege you just are given what you're given and you're and and your your best thing to do with it like there's there's only so much use in feeling guilty about it, right? But it's easy to get caught up in in the idea of like, oh, I feel so bad about it all. And like, I feel like I am like the problem. And it's like, you're not the one who did it. Like, you're not Sir John A. McDonald, yeah. you know? It's, you're, you're not the one who, who did a lot of these things and no one's saying that you are. Just saying like, you know, take responsibility for your own emotions and, and do your own learning on these things and understanding the differences um kind of related to it but like I feel like just from what I've seen that when it comes to different minorities and different groups in Canada there's different levels of acceptability in terms of racism yeah like I feel like with being black there are some things like most people are not going to say the n-word most people are not going to say super blatantly racist things to me I'm not you know I'm not everyone I'm there's definitely lots of black people in Canada who've had completely different experiences to me um but like from my own experience even growing up in a pretty rural area like I didn't have a lot of people who were outwardly directly racist to me constantly because there's a level I think of like you can say those things around the dinner table you can say them at home to your own family, but you can't say them in the workplace. You can't say them at school. There's this level of like social politeness of like, there's some things we just don't say out loud, but you believe them in your head and you will share them with your family. Um, but depending on the group of people, I feel like a lot of people are aware of at least some of the major things that would be considered racist to say about black people so they don't say those things. Even with people asking me, what's your heritage or what's your background instead of where you're from? They understand that where you're from, that, that doesn't sound like a good question. That sounds really accusatory, but they still wanna know. And so they think background or heritage or is an acceptable way to bring up that topic. There's just no acceptable way to bring it up if you don't know me. Um, but depending on the group of people, I don't know too much about like, uh, Latin people living in in Canada. Uh, I have seen from like, or talked to some Asian people that have had some pretty blatant racism towards them, uh, depending on the area that they were growing up in. Some of them, if they grew up in a more multicultural area, it wasn't as bad, but growing up in really white areas dealt with some pretty like overt racism towards them. Um, in school and I think like overall it's the most socially acceptable to be racist towards indigenous people like it's just in some kind cases just like expected but it's one of the things that like I, I do remember hearing and seeing a lot of that growing up from some of the people around me and like initially taking those things on and not questioning them until I got older and those things came up again and I was like I was like that's not a good thing to say 
yeah. like, that's not a, a good that's really not a good like belief to have about this uh this like group of people after all of the things that have been done to them uh by settlers and by Canadians throughout history like it's really not our place to sit here like judging and saying oh they're you know their communities aren't aren't great or they need to do this or they need to accept this help and stuff and you're like looking at like I can understand why they don't trust the government I can understand why you wouldn't maybe want the help of certain people because they have historically been awful you know and and that kind of thing (laughs) yeah and I think there's a, a level of social acceptability in terms of like saying racist things about uh indigenous people that depending on the area you're in you could say something racist about an indigenous person and say and say something equally racist about a black person you're probably going to get called out on the racist comments toward black people more harshly than you will the comments about indigenous people and it does depend on the area and the makeup of the people around you but it is still I feel like it's still pretty pervasive within Canadian society. Oh, 100%. 100%. And, and the types of conversations that are happening about the requests for help from different minority groups, right? That the conversation will be more entertained if it's something that is socially acceptable and comfortable, as you said. I'm, I'm really glad you brought that point up, and I, I greatly appreciated. Um, you mentioning that it's not the responsibility of minority groups to make the space comfortable for white people because Mm -hmm. that discomfort is how you're going to grow. It does not feel good to admit that you were Mm -hmm. part of a system or that you benefited from a system that brought down so many other people, but it is absolutely Mm -hmm. your responsibility, as you said, to personally manage that that is not the responsibility of the minority group that you're claiming to be an ally of to manage, again, managing your reaction and and expectation of how they should be um, going about their movement and their, oh my God, Ginny, I'm so sorry. Give me one second. (laughs) What is she doing? She's climbing the screen, but like my bedroom window is not over the balcony. So if she falls out, she's going down into the parking lot. My guy. Oh my God, Ginny. Oh my goodness. We gotta close it now. There's gonna be no airflow in here. It's gonna be so sweaty. Our AC broke last week, so. Um, Ooh. I'd have to edit my butt out of that. I that reminds me I need to go to these shorts for <laughs> whoopsies. That reminds me I need to get mine cleaned. <sighs> yeah. I um, turned it off on for like five minutes one day and I was like, nope it smells so bad it's so bad so I'm like I need to get cleaned but I need to like message somebody about it um I might have to do that this afternoon I might spend half an hour formulating a Korean message to send yeah be like please come please come clean my AC it stinks (laughs) yeah I'm pretty sure the last guy didn't have it cleaned no no I'm gonna guess he never had it cleaned Mm, that's fair ours was here when we moved in like the last tenants left it here and we were so excited because we were like sweet you don't have to buy one pay the deposit for the summer and then um a week and a half after we were using it it broke 
like it started making some clunky noises it sounded like someone threw a wrench into it and then it was shaking and I was like I'm just gonna turn this off (laughs) and now every time you turn it on it makes that noise so why did that remind me of the of the fork in the garbage disposal (laughs) video same energy same (laughs) fear of like explosion happening um Ginny is now mad at me and she's leaving. She's like, how dare you close the window? I'm trying to save your life. Damn. Um, Sounds like you're trying to stop her fun. (laughs) though, It's not like I bought you a special backpack so that you could go sit on the balcony. I love this cat so much. Oh my God. Angry as a child. Right? Yeah. I do so much for you. Except that's toxic parenting. Um, oh man I love that about pets that they just have no sense of like why you're doing the thing for them to help them stay alive they're just like why are you cutting my nails right (laughs) why are you bathing me I hate it and you're like this you need this you need this for your health and you don't understand that I'm just trying to love you (laughs) I had to buy special like cat wipes to clean her because bathing her is not she's terrified of water and I don't know her history before coming here right so I don't know if that's just like normal cat aversion or if something happened to her um Mm -hmm. so it's been a lot of like trial and error and also fleshing out like toxic parenting patterns that were intergenerational that I never realized were toxic until I said them out loud to my cat and I was like oh my god (laughs) I could never say that to a child like that's awful (laughs) You know what, though? That's almost a great way to learn that, though, because a cat doesn't understand if you're saying something toxic to them. They they have no clue, right? So you have that chance to hear the words come out of your mouth and go, I got to change that. Literally. Actually, that- A pet is a practice baby. <laughs> there was a post that I saw recently that said, plants are the new cats, or plants are the new pets, pets are the new children, and children- um, are the new exotic animal that's for the rich and crazy. And I was like, that, yeah, I treat her like a child. Like, I, I buy her special food. I, you know, I'm, like, reading how I can interact with her better and, like, how to communicate with cats and, like, behavior training, which thanks, Psych Degree, for helping me with that one. Um, who, who thought I would use use my degree for parenting a cat? But, you know, draw from all your resources (laughs) but yeah I think uh reparenting using a cat is a great idea Uh, and that was something actually that I started um talking about in therapy like one of my first sessions with my therapist Mm -hmm. um he asked like what what I was hoping to get out of it and I was like I'm in the process of reparenting myself but also parenting Mm -hmm. my cat so this has got to be like we're working through things um and I think that's like a great tie-in to what we were talking about with intergenerational influence and that you're not responsible for your ancestors' actions, but you're responsible for changing how you benefit from them and how you interact with the systems that are oppressing a vast majority of our population. Um, And I want to speak to the colonizers for a second, (laughs) because like, you're going to be uncomfortable that's, that's the whole point of it. You mm-hmm. no longer get to be comfortable in a system that is harming people. That we're just not doing it anymore. 
that's that's not what what this is about and your job is to make space for people to be heard because your your voice carries weight your presence carries weight your actions your behaviors your thoughts your beliefs your interactions carry weight and it is your responsibility to use that to amplify the people who need to be heard who have experienced what it is like to live as a marginalized individual or as part of a minority group and be okay with the discomfort that you're going to feel because it doesn't feel good it, it just doesn't and it, it's never going to but that's that's the work that you're tasked with doing um, mm -hmm. and we see that a lot with like tone policing of like you know you it comes back to that anger mm -hmm. right of like you can't get mad about this is like why though because it's, mm -hmm. it's generational like you're allowed to be mm -hmm. mad about it you are allowed to be absolutely livid with things that personally affect you and and your family and your your I was about to say heritage and I was like no <laughs> <laughs> your ancestors your ancestors, yeah yeah um right like that just be uncomfy get comfortable with being uncomfortable because it, it's going to happen and that's that's very much your space if you're going to be a good ally you got to and this goes for any group of people that you are being an mm -hmm. ally for um especially like as we're talking about this in pride month like that's coming up a lot of people who are like well i'm an ally and it's like okay but you're not calling out microaggressions you're not calling other people out when they do something that's problematic and you're also not calling yourself out <laughs> right mm -hmm. like if you're still engaging as you said in those uh politically correct interactions with other people but then when you go home and you're having a separate conversation you're saying things that are not um humane i want to say that they're not humane um mm -hmm. you're not a good ally like that's just not yeah that's not what being an ally is um mm -hmm. it's a learning curve right like no one is expecting you yeah. to get it right off the bat they're expecting you to listen and and yeah. to learn and, and be willing to admit that you made a mistake it doesn't mean that you're a bad person it means that you're willing to sit down and have a conversation yeah and there's absolutely levels to allyship as well, right? There's there's absolutely like levels and there's moments for it, right? If you have if you know, if you're if you're yourself straight but you have like a super homophobic grandparent uh that is, you know, maybe yeah, maybe you don't engage in it with them because you're not going to change their mind. And you already know that like engaging in that conversation is going to leave both of you feeling awful and they're not going to gain anything from it. Yeah, that's fine that like you don't have to engage in every fight that comes up just because it comes up. But there are other other moments, right, that where it comes to like respecting a person's pronouns or, you know, trying your best not to ask, you know, really invasive questions, right? If you have like a friend who's trans trying not to ask them about like the details of their transition and what they have had done and what they're planning to have done and that kind of thing. If that, that's not the, the, the relationship that you have with each other, definitely depending on the setting, there's, there's a time if you're super close with that person and they say it's okay to ask some of those kinds of questions and you're alone, sure. But yeah, you wouldn't bring that up around the dinner table and things like that, or like around another group of people as just, a casual conversation topic um and you know doing the best to like 
learn things yourself. The majority of people are not expecting perfection, right? The majority of people that that I know who use alternate pronouns don't expect people to get it right away, but they're happy when people try. Yeah. Um, they know that like, if you've known them by a certain pronoun for a really long time, uh, switching it is not going to necessarily come just like that. Some people are super good at that. And some people have gotten really good at switching, switching pronouns, switching names for people right away. But they like, a lot of people are, are pretty good at that. I remember one of one of our friends who used to live in the house, who was, you know, pretty, pretty chill with it. If people like, uh, use their own pronouns or misgendered them, partly because they dealt with that a lot with their family, but also because like, you know, you don't, you're not, ex they're not expecting people to get it right away. Um, they're, you know, they know that people are trying and if the person uses the wrong thing and then corrects themselves, like they're not going to make a big deal about it because you're, you're trying. And sometimes it takes a little while to get the new wiring, the new thing into your brain, especially if you've known the person long enough to know um, their name before their pronouns before, and to have seen them in a different way that changing those things can take a little bit of time. It's one of those things I see that doesn't always come up when talking about coming out, that when you come out to people, you've, I mean, some people may do it really quickly, but a lot of people have spent a lot of time thinking about this new change in themselves. And it's not to say that it's okay if people respond homophobically uh, or respond, respond transphobically, like you shouldn't stand for that. But if someone has a little bit of trouble adjusting to it, or they ask a question that's a bit inappropriate because they're not quite sure, especially if they don't really know much about this community, um, it's not the end of the world if they don't know how to perfectly respond to your coming out. I've even seen like tons of videos of people talking about how do you respond when somebody comes out to you because there's such variation in what you even should say depending on how the person brings it up right some people you know I remember back at the beginning when I did those you know a serious conversation with somebody I was expecting them to like take it seriously and was expecting a bit of a bigger reaction but nowadays I like I slip it into conversation really quickly, either, you know, if it's, if it's the Demi thing is really hard to switch it, slip into conversation without yeah. just straight up saying like, I'm Demi. But when it comes to liking girls, like it's easy to um, just talk about, oh, I was, I was seeing this girl at one point. And most people that I will bring that up with, they won't question it they just let it go but I do remember one time last summer eating with some friends and bringing up that I'd be on a, on a date with a cup with a girl because it just I was hanging out with foreigners and I was like yeah this is fine and like they they weren't they didn't have a bad reaction they had a very big reaction they were like oh my gosh like they're like oh you like girls and I was like yeah <laughs> like it's it's <laughs> The, the matching of the energy, right? I My energy when saying it was, this is a thing I'm saying in passing. So it was very mismatched for them to suddenly be like, oh my gosh, right? To to be to be surprised by that. I wasn't expecting the reaction, but it wasn't a bad one. Um, but like, yeah, there's levels to allyship. There's moments where you shouldn't start a fight. Yeah. Um, I've seen some people talk about this as well. I think it was... I think it's the, 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 what is it? The YouTube channel uh, Innuendo Studios. He has a whole series called the Alt-Right Playbook. That's right. really, really 
interesting. Um, and I think it's in the early part of that series that he talks to someone, he talks about how like, there's some fights that you shouldn't engage in, right? There's some moments where you don't want to engage in something. You have to realize that like, for you, that when, you know, when you finish, you know, fighting with, especially if it's coming to, to like incels or like that sort of group of people, some of them at least, um, that if you, especially are a white man in general going into these conversations, but if you're a less marginalized person and you go into this conversation and get into it with these people, when you come away from it, you come away and that's the end of the conversation, but for them, they are now going coming away from it very angry and that anger is not gonna be taken out on you. It's gonna be taken out on a more marginalized person. Of a, of a group of people that they're more angry to and he's talked about that as well that like that kind of comes into allyship as well of like when do you use you know using your platform to promote others voices but also knowing that there's certain conversations with certain people that it's not a good idea to bring up because that's not going to come back to you it's going to hurt somebody else and it's easy to finish that and feel like you've done your deed for the day you've you know taken an asshole down a couple of pegs, but to bring himself back up, he's not going to come back to you and try to fight you on it. He's going to go to someone else. Yeah, that's a really great distinction. Thank you for bringing that up. I hadn't thought of that uh, perspective before of mm -hmm. whether that emotional response is going to be directed after the end of the interaction and that some people mm -hmm. just save your breath. You're not, you're not going to make that difference, right? And that discernment, I think, comes with having open conversations with the people that mm -hmm. you are claiming to be an ally for and that are assuming that position for um or with i should say that you're you're being an ally alongside um these communities i think that's a, a really great distinction that you've made so thank you for bringing that up I appreciate mm -hmm. that. it's a fantastic series and it brought that idea more forward for me as well to like to hear that that thought of like, because I mean, I don't go out of my way to find that kind of person on the internet and talk yeah. to them because that's not gonna end well for me. Uh, but it is a good distinction to make, especially if you're in a position of power that that kind of thing can harm somebody else. And you can go into it with the absolute best of, con of, of intentions of like trying to reason with these, this person, but there's a level of like, there's some people that they've been around long enough to either they've been around long enough to have decided where their views fall and they're probably not going to change their mind or they've been indoctrinated with so, so many horrible ideals that one conversation where you spew these facts at them and you 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 know are essentially proving them wrong is not going to help them suddenly see the light because it's not like these things are things they can't find out on their own there's there's other things that have drawn them into this community that need to be addressed for them to be able to get out. And it's ultimately not on you to like bring them out of a, of a harmful ideology. Um, but that there's, there's other areas where you can, right? Listening to the people around you and what they, what they want. And, and also looking within your own life of like, what are the areas that you can, like for me working in education, I want to, tie in these ideas of, of diversity and teaching the kids about other groups. There's some things I can do and some things I can't. South Korea is not super open about gay people, so I can't just throw gay things in there as much as I would like to. Um, 
I mean, even like same-sex kisses are considered a 19 plus thing. If it's a music video or whatever, um, or movie, it'll be rated mature if there's a kiss between a same-sex pairing. Right. Um, and children are allowed to see that. So I, if I wanted to like, if I needed to teach the word kiss, I have to use a heterosexual kiss. Right. Uh, if I use a gay kiss, that's bad in the classroom here. And I, I'm not gonna change that on my own. But on the flip side, we have our, the textbook particularly for the younger ones has this section called Hello World, where it'll talk a little bit about things in other, other places. Um, and so I'll usually expand on what it has. Like I think this week for the grade fours, it's like uh, sports that are popular around the world. So I expanded on that and we usually kind of play it as a little game. I'll show them the sport and I ask them, where do you think they play this? And they get to guess a bunch of countries until they guess the right country where um, it's played or I'll show them foods or we did one day it was really fun. We listened to music and they were, I played them um, the Red River Jig, which is um, a Métis jig, I believe. And they were jamming. They loved it. <laughs> like they really, really enjoyed it. Um, and I try my best to like teach them little bits as I go in a way that is digestible for them, but allows them to see, you know, more of, of the world. Um, and one of my co-teachers was really good because the food one, obviously like there's foods that they're not used to in kids whenever they see a food that they really wouldn't like, they are gonna be like, oh my gosh, that's gross. Um, that one of my co-teachers stepped in with them and had a conversation about how you have to be respectful of other people's uh, foods, right? You wouldn't like it if somebody said, somebody from somewhere else said to you that kimchi was really gross um and they hadn't even tried it so she's like you can you don't have to like it that's fine but you do have to be respectful of of this kind of thing um that you know just because something's different doesn't mean that it is bad or gross or or weird and trying to get that idea in so like on my own level a lot of it comes back to like my sphere of influence is within my classroom so wherever I can show them a little bit more about another place in the world and teach them about a different culture and hopefully teach them to approach difference with a more open mind. That's where I want to lean into, into my allyship um, on, on certain things, because at the moment that's my sphere of influence. And when I go home, it's going to be a similar thing that like, what can I bring into my classroom that, allows allows for that broadening of the mind at whatever level the kids are at that is you know appropriate and understandable as well and comprehensible at their at their mental level um, and lets them start to explore the idea that there's other in the world and it's fine and it's honestly pretty fun to explore the things that are different from what you're used to. And it's fine to come back to what you're used to eventually, but exploring that is really cool. So I feel like sometimes it's not talked about. I mean, I feel like maybe it can be difficult to jump into allyship because there's not always a, a list of like, here's how to be an ally. I'm sure there are some good lists out there, but sometimes it can be difficult to figure out what am I supposed to be doing? Um, and it's really easy to fall into performative stuff and think that you're helping. Like it's super duper easy to, to think that something performative is 
really a really really helpful useful thing for people without realizing that it's a performative act and truly that people even within the community some people are going to say this is a really helpful thing and other people are going to say this is super performative and it depends on what it is um that it can be sometimes difficult to figure out where to where to start with it or what to lean into but sometimes i think at least like looking at your own sphere of influence and like what can I do in my sphere of influence? What's worth engaging in? Who is it honestly not worth my time to like try to engage with because they are, they're not going to change their mind. Like, you know, for a lot of people, grandparents, aunts and uncles might, they're not gonna, they're not going to suddenly bend to like, you know, they've, they've been around long enough to have discovered that things are different. And if they're actively choosing at this point, if, if, you know, if you've been on this planet for 60 years and you're choosing to believe that certain things are bad or certain people are bad, you've made that choice actively, you know, you're, you're continuing to make that choice as an active one and not as a, and not as a passive one. And you can think that it's passive, but you have enough, you have enough resources around you and, and usually ease to find find those resources if you're really limited in terms of being able to find resources if you're really struggling with like uh so your socioeconomic status and things like that then I can understand like your ability to see a resource is going to be different but if you're coming from like a middle class background you've got high speed internet like and you're fluent in English and you can go online you have the ability to at least understand that there's a diversity to each group of people. And yeah, any group of people is gonna have bad people. It, it literally doesn't matter any population you take. If you take a group of black people, there's gonna be bad people if you take a big enough group, right? If you take a group of white people, there's gonna be bad people. If you take a big enough group, it doesn't like same for gay people and for trans people and for Asian people, it doesn't matter. Like bad people exist because there are bad people, not because of where they came from. <laughs> I, I really love what you said about the sphere of influence. And I think that encompasses beautifully like everything that we've talked about in this episode, um, which mm. <laughs> surprise, we did it again. We said, yeah. No, I was looking at the clock like this is two episodes. This is two episodes. Honestly, <laughs> I'm probably just going to upload it at once. And uh, we're going to we're going to figure out who's who's down to listen to a two and a half hour chat about uh, big life mm -hmm. stuff. Um, but I think it encompasses beautifully like everything that we've talked about and how allowing yourself to step out of those typical expectations and that way that things have always been or the way that we've always thought or interacted, it really comes down to developing your own discernment about one, what is safe for you to engage in with where you are and who you are surrounded by, safety first, safety second. Um, first two things are safety. Yeah, um, safety and safety. <laughs> exactly. Um, and then, and trickling that down to being open to discussion and decentering the personal experience of it, right? Like if it's uncomfortable, that's okay. You won't die. It might feel like you are dying, but you will not die from being uncomfortable. Um, and, and really allowing, allowing ourselves to accept the possibility that there is a way of life completely different from what we've been used to and what we're accustomed to that can be just as beneficial 
that can be just as fulfilling and um, enriching in your life, right? And, and working within where you are, that sphere of influence that you said, working with where you are, what you have and what you're passionate about. Because if you're, if you're fighting a fight just to have the fight, you're not going to be as effective as discussing something that you're passionate about, something that brings you that sense of fulfillment and is in alignment with where you are and what you're able to offer in terms of that conversational exchange, right? That sphere of influence that you're talking about, you mentioned it with education for you. For me, it's mental health care um, and like psychoeducation with, uh, I mean, I like to tie in the spirituality aspect of that, but we can look at it from just a, a scientific perspective um, as well, if that's necessary. But looking at what you can do with where you are and what you've got is really what it comes down to and, and keeping an open mind to having your perspective shift and, and allow mm -hmm. yourself to let go of something you may have been told would benefit you, but doesn't feel right. And if it doesn't feel right, that's okay. And there's, there's nothing wrong with exploring, with changing your mind, with exploring and deciding that you like the way that things are going, um, like in your own personal, in your own personal life with how you're choosing to live your life. Um, so long as we're not causing harm to people. So I feel like we covered a lot of stuff in this episode. Uh, a yeah. lot of things, uh, that have been put out to be thought about. Um, I always love the couple days after we have these big chats. Cause I, <laughs> I go through it. Okay. Oh, wow. <laughs> there are a lot of things that um, you bring up that I, it's just so impactful. I feel like I learn so much from you every time we interact. It's truly incredible. Um, and I'm glad you're in the education sector because, uh, damn, you'd be changing some freaking lives, my lady. Um, <laughs> but yeah, before we wrap up, was there anything else that you wanted to say if you want to drop any like socials uh, or anywhere that people can like oh, find you or whatever whatever you're comfortable with you can also text I think don't do anything on social my yeah. social medias are so like different I have like yeah. all of my personal <laughs> ones they scared us in in uh, teachers college yeah. they like uh, they I don't know if they did this for you guys as well like because you're you know you work with with clients and you might have people who kind of look you up I don't know if they did the same thing but like for teaching they came in um, and they told us like they're just telling us all these horror stories about teachers who post something online and then a parent finds it and they start yeah. complaining to the school and it causes like a massive issue and then they're just like just scrub your social media clean they're like you know don't post anything and oh uh, and like you know, so I have like my, my like proper, like personal media is like Instagram and Facebook are like private ed. And then I have other social media where I don't use my proper name yeah. that are, that are like, that are like my, okay, this is my fun space where I can just do whatever I want. There's a really good teacher on TikTok who talks, he makes really funny stuff, but he also like in a way jokingly, but he is still addressing the fact that like a lot of people forget that teachers are people who yeah. have lives yeah. and will, you know, throw this big fit if they find out that the, the teacher was out on the weekend 
uh, and, and living their life. And you're like, or we'll think like teachers shouldn't drink. And you're like, I, yeah, some people don't want to, but like, it's not a big deal if, if that, so long as they're not coming to school uh, under the influence, you know, as with, as with anything, any other job, like you do what you want in your spare time. If it's in, if you're, if you're unable to like get, go into work without being like under the influence, then yeah, there's a problem start becoming, you know, or jo- join the, there's a problem coming into your life at that, that point. Yeah. Uh, but if you're able to engage with it in your private time here or there, and you're also not in an area where your students are going to see you, like if you're like, especially I'm saying that if he's happens to be at a club and he's dancing or something and a parent, happens to come in that it's like the kid's not going to be there the kid won't know unless the parents say so (laughs) you know yeah the kids aren't going to be pulling up to the club it's not you know they they it's it's fine for them to like be you know and I I might be like careful about what I wear in my own neighborhood because I live very close to my school so I will likely see my kids when I walk around on the weekends and also if they're walking around there with their parents and so I want to be thoughtful about the things that I wear but if I'm going to like Hongdae or Gangnam and I want to dress a little bit like differently from what I would be comfortable with my students Sammy and I don't mind because it's just the short walk from here to the the subway station and then I'm out of the area and the kids aren't going to see me or if it's ev- late in the evening and they're not going to see me anyway because they're hopefully it's like asleep in like yeah. um, <laughs> you know yeah, um, we had that experience where they uh, they had like pulled up people's um, socials in class. Mm-hmm. Like they asked before, like if anybody was okay sharing it, and they would pick it up or pull it up on the projector. And I have like my set of professional ones, uh, but even now I'm I'm very much leaning towards blending that over um, of having like a cohesive identity that my work version of me is not different than my personal version of me minus Mm. the sense of boundaries within connection right like my professional boundaries are going to be a lot different than what you and I would talk about um, yeah or what I share in my other personal spaces but yeah that's fair I (laughs) I was thinking about like when I was on somebody else's podcast and she was like oh yeah drop your socials I was like oh shit I should probably ask but I forgot all your stuff was uh yeah my stuff it's either private or it's like a completely different just a space that I'm like this is my me space and it's not it's my it's my online space where people know me very differently yeah I love that though I love that you have boundaries like that you've definitely taught me a lot about boundaries over the years of like having something that is uniquely yours Um, Mm. so yeah I I would love to have you back on the show at some point in the future um, definitely we'll let this one rest and digest and uh I'm sure we'll spend another like three hours talking oh my god seriously you know what would be cool actually is if we could do a live stream because like I I stream on Twitch now which is fun, uh, fun. yeah I I've done two live streams both of them are like yesterday I was carving rocks actually look at this one I did a dragon yeah oh that's pretty thank you um yeah so maybe we could do like a live stream one or something if we know it's going to be a longer thing or maybe do like a Q&A or whatever but yeah anyways those are all thoughts we can talk about later but I would love to have you Mm -hmm. back in the space I've really enjoyed um sharing and uh holding space for experiences and 
and education. I think it's a very valuable uh, aspect of, of the work we're doing. <laughs> awesome. Okay, well, I'm gonna end the recording. We can like finish right. up privately on our own. But yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. Okay, well, thank you everybody for listening. Um, if you've made it this far in a whole one listen or whether you took breaks and came back or whatever, or even if you fast forwarded, thank you so much for being here and we will see you in the Put next- on one time times speed or 1.5 times speed honestly i wouldn't even be mad about that i do that with my textbooks so yeah do it for sure <laughs> whatever you gotta do <laughs> awesome well thanks so much for being here guys and we'll see you in the next episode bye, bye. okay what the fuck